Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 10, Long Weekend. Much of Mad Men's first season focuses on the 1960 presidential campaign between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Sterling Cooper has picked Nixon and endeavors to get him elected, advising on advertising strategy. Mad Men introduces the campaign in Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and revs up mid-season, especially in Shoot, when Pete and Harry make a breakthrough, diminishing Kennedy's television airtime after buying up commercial slots. Long Weekend is Mad Men's 10th episode, written by Bridget Bedard, Andre and Marie Jacquemettin, and Matthew Weiner. It tells the story of Labor Day weekend in New York City, diving further into the Nixon campaign and examining several hopeless relationships in turmoil. Through both dialogue and subtextual elements, Long Weekend makes several references to classic television and film. I'm going to provide a bit of background where appropriate, and I understand that this could get lengthy, so I'll do my best to keep the backstory short. But keep in mind that classic film is something I find exciting, It's the reason I do this show, and I'm glad that I'll get to share some cursory thoughts on each of these films. Long Weekend begins at the stairway of the Draper House, where a thermometer shows the rising midsummer heat. Sally announces Grandpa Jean has arrived. Don stops at the landing, dressed for work, and jokes with Sally about slipping out the door unnoticed. He instead moves to the kitchen, finding Betty and Jean. Eugene Hofstadt is played by actor Ryan Catrona, He wears a sport jacket that almost matches the kitchen's plaid wallpaper. Jean and Don shake hands awkwardly. It's immediately apparent they don't like each other. Jean introduces his new girlfriend, Gloria. The family is headed to the beach, and Betty asks Don to help her with a suitcase. When they get to the bedroom, she complains about her father's girlfriend, upset that he's moved on so quickly. Was she waiting at the funeral unbuttoning her top button? She's a vulture, Betty accuses. Remember that Betty's still grieving over her mother's passing. She expects her father to do the same. But Jean's not accustomed to living life alone, as Don notes, saying, he's been married for 40 years. He can't even fix himself a cup of tea. Later that morning, Don sits in the conference room to review ads from the Nixon and Kennedy campaigns. The camera pulls back over the conference room table, past a projector that blasts Kennedy's commercial onto the darkness of the conference room screen. A light-hearted jingle accompanies the ad. We've discussed in past episodes how Mad Men portrays the shallow marketing campaigns of consumer products, and Don recognizes the same approach in Kennedy's campaign. He praises the ad as light and catchy. Harry, Paul, and Pete, however, are divided about the commercial. It's catchy. It's catchy like it gets in your head and makes you want to blow your brains out. The president is a product. Don't forget that. A second ad immediately follows, showing Nixon sitting on a desk, delivering a dull, practiced message to the American people. I would like to talk to you for a moment about dollars and cents. Your dollars and cents. Now, my opponents want to increase federal expenditures as much as $18 billion a year. How will they pay for it? 
There are only two ways. One is to raise your taxes. That hurts everyone. The other is to increase our national debt, and that means raising your prices, robbing you of your savings, cutting into the value of your insurance, hurting your pocketbook every day at the drugstore, the grocery store, the gas station. Is that what you want for America? Don begs Harry to stop the projector. He laments the uninspired approach of Nixon's campaign, saying his ads were created by a public relations department. Pete and Harry laugh as Paul suggests a new jingle for Nixon's team. We should give this to Franz for some music. Nixon's campaign song in the key of E. Ethel, go get the ice pick. That Nixon guy is on TV again. Should have never. Roger enters the conference room and instructs everyone to start watching TV to help with the campaign. He notes that the race should have never been so close. Pete asks if there's any personal dirt the agency can use against Kennedy, but Roger dismissively states he's a womanizer. Don also brushes this off, saying that Kennedy's womanizing reputation and good looks will only help him in the polls. Instead, Don argues, Nixon should strive to tell his own story. Don sees in Nixon the embodiment of the American dream, a story that can inspire potential voters. Why do we need to attack when there's a story to tell? Kennedy, nouveau riche, recent immigrant who bought his way into Harvard, and now he's well-bred? Great. Nixon is from nothing. Self-made man, the Abe Lincoln of California, who was vice president of the United States six years after getting out of the Navy. Kennedy, I see a silver spoon. Nixon, I see myself. For the sake of time, I'm going to simplify the background on Nixon and Kennedy. But if you're interested, I plan to release a more comprehensive video on my YouTube channel that recaps the 1960 presidential election including all the campaign ads and Mad Men-related materials I can find. That video will drop in the next few weeks, so please, go check it out. Richard Milhouse Nixon was born on January 9, 1913, to a family of California Quakers. The second of four brothers, Nixon attended Fullerton Union High School for two years before transferring to Whittier High School. He became interested in debate and politics, running several times for class president. Nixon showed his will to action from a young age. During high school, he would wake at 4 a.m., drive to Los Angeles, purchase vegetables from the market, and stock them at his family's store. Despite the demands of supporting his family, Nixon graduated third in his class. He would later say of his youth, We were poor, but the glory of it was we didn't know it. Nixon was offered a grant to attend Harvard, but he chose to attend Whittier College and eventually graduated from Duke University School of Law. Throughout this time, he earned a reputation for his hard work and refusal to give up. After graduating from Duke, Nixon sought to join the FBI, but the Bureau failed to respond to his application. He instead returned to California and worked as an attorney for the firm Wingert & Bewley. Nixon's family moved to Washington, D.C. in 1942, when he took a job at the Office of Price Administration. But he became bored with his work, and despite an exemption from the military draft, he applied to join the Navy eventually serving as a lieutenant in World War II's Pacific Theater. Upon returning from the war, Nixon was tabbed as a politician in California's struggling Republican Party. He served first as a state congressman, then in the U.S. Senate, and eventually as the vice president for fellow serviceman Dwight D. Eisenhower. Throughout his political career, Nixon earned a reputation as an intense campaigner. 
We talked in episode 1.7 about Nixon's pink sheet campaign during the 1950 California Senate election. Nixon eventually earned the nickname Tricky Dick, a name which sounds awfully similar to our own Dick Whitman. And much like Don, Nixon's legacy is one of a talented but highly guarded enigma. Nixon himself stated he didn't believe in discussing his troubles and feelings, even with his close friends. He wore a suit at home. By the end of his career, many Americans still felt like they didn't know Nixon, the man. Author Richard Reeves summed this up well in his novel, President Nixon Alone in the White House, writing, He clung to the idea of being tough. He thought that was what had brought him to the edge of greatness, but that was what betrayed him. He could not open himself to other men, and he could not open himself to greatness. Understanding Nixon is key to understanding Don Draper. Don is obviously moved by Nixon's story, one of self-reliance, of a man who made himself a success. Much like Nixon, Don comes from poverty. He feels as though life has handed him nothing. And in Nixon, he sees a compatriot, a stern, self-made man, without a hint of privilege. Like Nixon, Don's character is haunted by an inner self he conceals from the world. His stoic exterior belies significant inner doubt about who he is as a man. And just as Nixon campaigned so belligerently, earning the nickname Tricky Dick and eventually breaking the law and resigning the presidency, Don skirts ethical boundaries for his own sake. He lies to co-workers, to clients, and even to his wife. Pete looks on carefully, his interest piqued by Don's monologue. They're seated next to each other, and Mad Men does such a fantastic job of portraying the concept of privilege through these characters. Pete's so clearly similar to what Don describes in Kennedy, a boy, inexperienced, privileged, who's never known significant hardship. But much like Kennedy, Pete seems to understand America's changing landscape. He's one of the few Sterling Cooper employees who praises Kennedy and his campaign, and in doing so, he shows that he's not just some silver spoon, that he knows, perhaps intuitively, what America wants. Roger eventually shifts the topic to an upcoming meeting with Mankin's department store. He tells Don to supervise Paul's pitch to Rachel and her father. If we can switch to a conversation about paying clients, Mankin's is coming in today to sign off on the rollout, father and daughter. I get the feeling old Abe Schmankin can kill this whole thing. Of course, the checks have cleared already, but... Don, I want you to go in and ride bareback over Paul here. Don. And, uh, Don, I want you on your best behavior. Excuse me? And I know she bothers you. These little bits of irony that get tossed into the show's dialogue are so rewarding as a fan. Remember that Paul has handled Mankin's business since Marriage of Figaro. Here, Roger interprets this as a personal grudge between Don and Rachel. Don is startled and takes the warning as an accusation about his romantic interest. It's a small moment that reminds us how Mad Men frequently builds tension, making us wonder how much each character knows about the others. But Roger's not interested in Don's secrets right now. He leaves the conference room and finds Joan walking through the secretary pool. The musical cue here is the same one used in Joan's scene from Babylon when she dons the red, lipstick tube dress. Roger drops several crude jokes as they walk to his office. His wife and daughter are also out of town this weekend, and he asks to see Joan. Joan suggests they see the movie The Apartment, but Roger's already seen it. He makes a flippant comment about its lead character being passed around the office. Joan seems unamused. 
The Apartment tells the story of an everyman insurance clerk who climbs the corporate ladder by allowing senior co-workers to use his apartment for their extramarital affairs. It stars Jack Lemmon as Bud Baxter, a junior insurance employee who lives alone in his Upper West Side apartment. Bud allows senior managers to bring their mistresses to his apartment, eventually exchanging his favors for professional recommendations. He uses these recommendations to ask the firm's owner, Jeff Sheldrake, for a promotion. Sheldrake grants the promotion, but demands the use of Bud's apartment in return. Spurred by his success, Bud asks his crush, the building elevator operator named Fran, to go to the theater. Fran agrees to go, but first meets with Sheldrake in Bud's apartment. When she tries to break up with him, he dissuades her. Their continued involvement leaves Bud heartbroken, and he eventually solicits the companionship of a married woman. Fran learns of Sheldrake's other affairs and accepts that he will never love her exclusively. She overdoses on sleeping pills and passes out in Bud's apartment, where he finds her that evening. While she recovers in the hospital, she bonds with Bud, who confesses to heartbreak over a past love and his own suicide attempt. Fran continues to balance her relationships with Bud and Sheldrake, and Bud continues to climb the corporate ladder by loaning out his apartment. Sheldrake's wife eventually learns of his affairs and throws him out. Sheldrake sees this as an opportunity to pursue his relationship with Fran and asks Bud for the apartment, but Bud refuses and quits the firm, saying he wants to become a mensch. When Fran learns that Bud has resigned, she abandons Sheldrake and runs to the apartment to see Bud. The Apartment debuted on June 30, 1960. It's been recognized as one of the best films in American history, making the AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list twice. It was widely praised by critics and won five Academy Awards, including the 1960 Award for Best Motion Picture. The Apartment's themes of corporate determinism, greed, adultery, and love are significant to Long Weekend's story. I think we can view The Apartment as a microcosm of Mad Men's period, of people's attitudes toward the period's pervasive infidelity. Shirley MacLaine's character Fran is a proxy for Joan, a younger woman trapped in an oppressive affair with a wealthy man who will never love her wholeheartedly. Joan is troubled by the thought of MacLaine's character. Roger tries to dismiss her concerns, saying the girl is another example of Hollywood sensationalism. He mentions Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, a thriller in which motel proprietor Norman Bates murders women who stay with him. Some of you may know that Psycho was released in September 1960 and wonder how Roger could have seen it by Labor Day. But the film held early screenings in New York City, starting June 16th. If you haven't figured it out yet, Mad Men is really good with detail. The details make the show cohesive. And as set decorator Amy Wells said, for Matt Weiner, authenticity is a sort of penultimate thing in the show. Joan's disappointment spills over into the next scene, when her roommate, Carol, approaches her in the break room. Carol's eyes are bloodshot as she walks in and sits with Joan. She's been fired, even after covering for her boss. For perhaps the first time, Joan is sympathetic. She's grown frustrated with Roger, and suggests the roommate should go out and have fun. The rest of Sterling Cooper meets in the conference room with Mankin's department store. Don sits at the head of the table, diagonal from Rachel and her father, Abraham. Paul and Sal pitch the store's redesign, including a new ground floor cafe. Abraham is receptive, but worries that he's building a store he won't want to shop in. Don speaks up to persuade him. A new camera angle shows him describing the next generation of Mankin's customers. Your customers cannot be depended on anymore. Their lives have changed. They're 
prosperous. Over the years, they've developed new tastes. They're like your daughter. Educated, sophisticated. They know full well what they deserve, and they're willing to pay for it. The camera moves in on Rachel with a shot that evokes Joseph von Sternberg's 1932 movie, Shanghai Express. A widely heralded film from the pre-code Hollywood era, Shanghai Express is considered an outstanding example of chiaroscuro cinematography, a style focused on creating distinct areas of light and darkness in a frame. Chiaroscuro employs low-key lighting and intense contrast, and this shot of Rachel exemplifies that, her dark brown hair styled up away from the pale tone of her face. She wears heavy, ornate jewelry and an elegant blouse, evoking Shanghai Express's characteristically extravagant costumes. Rachel listens as Don argues that change is inevitable, that Abe shouldn't be sentimental. Times are changing, Don suggests, and eventually no one will care about the old-fashioned department store. But Rachel interrupts to defend her father. Excuse me, this is not some phony story you people print in your 4th of July circulars. My father actually started with nothing, and he made it into everything we're talking about. Who here can say that? It's clever how Mad Men introduces Abe Mencken in an episode that repeatedly confronts Don's ideas about being a self-made man. Played by Alan Miller, Mencken is surprisingly insightful. I think his agreeability perhaps stems from some part of himself that he recognizes in Don. As they leave Sterling Cooper, Abe cautions Rachel about Don. I hope you know what you're doing, he says. Shortly after the meeting, Pete walks into Don's office with some bad news. They've lost the Dr. Scholl's account. Once Pete leaves, Don shoves his things off his desk, alarming Peggy. He barges into Roger's office, where Roger sits at his desk, getting his hair cut. Roger shrugs off the lost client, echoing Don's earlier words. The day you sign a client is the day you start losing them. Roger continues to joke around to cheer Don up. He references the Jack Benny program, calling Don Rochester, the name of Jack Benny's butler. Matthew Weiner wrote this scene, and it was almost cut from the final episode. He worried the dialogue was too joke-heavy and that it wouldn't come across well. But I think it fits Roger's character, another silver spoon man of privilege, one who seems to take himself less seriously with each new episode. Pete finds Peggy in a secluded section of the office. He approaches her to ask if Don has confessed to Roger. Peggy grows upset, standing up to Pete in perhaps the most innocent and honest way possible. When she reminds Pete that he's the one who made a mistake, Pete says he has no use for her anymore. You're a writer now, he says. Don and Roger, meanwhile, show up to the agency's casting call for Cartwright double-sided aluminum. Sterling Cooper's imagined the campaign with twin girls. This was fun for director Tim Hunter, the father of twins, a director of Twin Peaks, Lies of the Twins, and Beverly Hills 90210. Don and Roger find Ken, Sal, Harry, and Paul, already engrossed with the young models. They stand at the end of the hallway, in almost a Wild West standoff with their junior co-workers. Paul repeats the do-you-like-Ukrainian-food pickup line he used on Peggy in Ladies' Room, but Don shoos him away. Roger looks over the four sets of twins, picks out two young women, hires them on the spot, and invites them to his office for a drink. As night descends on Sterling Cooper, Roger, Don, and the girls flirt in Roger's office. Don sits alone, denying Eleanor, who moves to the sofa next to Roger and her sister, Mirabelle. There's a nice three-shot here, the twins on either side of Roger. 
Several reverse angles capture the conversation and were meant to feel like the angle changes while the girl stays the same. Don grows uncomfortable as Roger ostentatiously flirts with the Ames sisters. He even asks them to kiss. Don gets up to leave, but Roger insists that he stay. He talks with Eleanor outside the office as Roger and Mirabelle have sex. They emerge with Roger riding atop Mirabelle, who wears only pink underwear. It's another reference to classic film, this time recreating a shot from La Dolce Vita. Federico Fellini's 1960 movie unfolds over seven episodes, consisting of dawn, day, and night sequences. Each episode depicts protagonist Marcello Rubini's life as a tabloid journalist. Through these seemingly disjointed stories, Rubini confronts an underworld of 120 characters. He battles the temptations of wealth and women as he endeavors to become an intellectual, but he eventually gives in to the lure of Rome's glamorous excess. La Dolce Vita is commonly praised as a classic of world cinema, and it's an especially poignant reference for Mad Men, a show that portrays the lavish lives of advertising executives. Episode 6, Babylon, alluded to this, suggesting that Don's life is devoid of any meaningful purpose, and in Long Weekend, we see Roger's pitiful descent into that empty life of lust and greed. Meanwhile, Joan and Carol pamper themselves in front of a mirror before their night out. Joan thinks out loud about her frustrations and says, I feel like I'm stuck somewhere between Doris Day and Pillow Talk and Midnight Lace. And what I need to be is Kim Novak and just about anything. Released in 1959, Pillow Talk stars Doris Day as a single New York City woman who works as an interior decorator. She beats back the advances of a wealthy client while quarreling with her neighbor Brad, a Broadway composer and playboy with whom she shares a telephone line and eventually develops a relationship. Midnight Lace also stars Doris Day, this time as Kit Preston, the wife of a wealthy British businessman. She hears voices that threaten to kill her and begins to see a psychiatrist due to her anxiety. Kit's husband, psychiatrist, and the police suggest her fears are imagined, but she eventually learns the truth that her husband had planned to kill her for money. Mentioning these films is a reasonably honest self-examination for Joan. She projects the same independence as Doris Day's Pillow Talk character, but internally, she struggles with anxieties and confusion, much like Kit Preston in Midnight Lace. Joan suggests, seemingly to herself, that she should be more like Kim Novak, a popular actress at the time. About her 1958 role in Vertigo, Novak said, I really identified with the fact of someone that was being made over with resentment, with wanting to, needing approval and wanting to be loved and willing to go to any lengths to get that. I really identified with the movie because it was saying, please, see who I am, fall in love with me. I think what Joan reveals through this line is that she still hasn't given up on her romantic notions about love. She's stuck in an affair with Roger that's headed nowhere. She often shrugs this off with confidence as an outwardly independent woman. But despite the cynicism she projects, Joan still clings to hope that she'll find love. Joan's optimism helps cheer up Carol, who eventually breaks down and confesses that she's in love with Joan, that she's followed Joan from college, that she's befriended Joan just to get closer. I did everything I could to be near you, all with the hope that one day you would notice me. There's significant conflict in Long Weekend between Carol's honesty and Joan's continued deflection. Joan's doing this from a place of concern. She remains sincere with Carol, 
her friend, someone she cares about but doesn't love. Tony. Just think of me as a boy. You've had a hard day. Let's go out and try to forget about it, okay? Joan and Carol return that evening with Franklin, a college professor, and Ralph, a carpenter. The professor tells a story that Matthew Weiner overheard on a bus in New York City. Joan invites him to her bedroom and leaves Carol alone with Ralph. When Ralph moves to kiss her, Carol resigns herself. Back at the office, Roger lays on the floor, his head in Maribel's lap in a shot that reminds me of Don laying against Mitch's chest in episode one. Roger compares Mirabel to his own daughter before he has sex with her once more. Don chats with Eleanor and rejects her repeated attempts to seduce him. He's intentionally depicted as a better man than Roger throughout these scenes. But the conversation is interrupted by Mirabel's scream, and a crane cam pans down the Sterling Cooper hallway as Don rushes to Roger's aid. He lays on the floor in the throes of a heart attack, sweating and pale. Mirabel cries, I knew I shouldn't have made him do it a second time. Don asserts himself, telling the girls to call an ambulance and leave. As Roger is carted out on a stretcher, Don slaps him across the face and reminds him about his wife and family. Mirabelle. Oh, Mirabelle. Mirabelle. Mona. Your wife's name is Mona. Roger recovers at the hospital ghastly pale and haunted by his confrontation with death. Don walks through the hallway to music borrowed from the hotel scene in 5G. When Don enters, Roger stares at him intensely, refusing to look away. He uses the words God and Jesus repeatedly. He asks if Don believes in a soul, but Don struggles to respond. I think in this moment, Don and Roger are spooked by the emptiness of their lives. The scene gives us a brilliant La Dolce Vita-inspired line, where Roger says, I wish I was going somewhere. Roger's family arrives and the hospital scene ends in a moving shot of Roger hugging his wife and daughter. It's a moment of total weakness for Roger, a man who outwardly portrays himself with such detachment. The acting in this scene is truly moving, especially when you consider that Roger's wife Mona is actor John Slattery's wife in real life. Slattery commented on this in a later interview. Having someone in your life who you know so well in so many different facets and have so many feelings about over the years walk in and you have sort of worked yourself into that state anyway. I mean, it just was yeah. the sort of floodgates opened and, and, and we got what we needed, you know, in the scene. Don looks on through the door, visibly shaken. I think here Don experiences a visceral reaction to the sight of death, one that perhaps dates back to his days as a soldier. But most importantly, in this moment, Don sees his own future. It's almost a Keynesian how Mad Men foreshadows Don's downfall through his friend Roger. We next see Don at a phone booth in the hospital's waiting room. He calls Betty to break the news about Roger's heart attack, trying to connect with her. But Don doesn't allow himself to be open with Betty. He doesn't let her see his fear. And Betty makes little effort to empathize with him. She instead changes the subject, talking about her own father, lamenting how love doesn't last forever. Don tells her not to think about it and hangs up. This scene, to me, is one of the most tragic in Don and Betty's relationship. It shows Don horrified by the near death of his friend Roger, 
refusing to expose his own deeply held fears. And it shows Betty, perhaps too preoccupied with her own anxiety, ignoring Don's veiled attempt to reach her. When watching this scene, there's an initial hope that this moment has inspired Don to repair his marriage. But the phone call quickly stifles that hope, and by the scene's end, it feels like Don and Betty's marriage is doomed, that they just can't connect. She sits up in bed at her beach house, between the Draper children, as he leans his head against the phone booth, exhausted. They're the perfect couple, a world apart. Don leaves and finds Pete in the lobby. He asks about Roger's condition, but they're interrupted by a television in the waiting room. A Kennedy ad attacks Nixon's political record, and Don and Pete look away, realizing that Nixon's candidacy is also doomed. Joan arrives at the office late that night with the professor. Bert Cooper sits alone in the secretary pool and breaks the news of Roger's heart attack. Joan tries to keep her composure, but she begins to tear up. She sits at a typewriter drafting a press release for Sterling Cooper's clients. You can do better, Cooper tells her. As they leave the office, Cooper asks Joan to run the elevator. Don't waste your youth on age, he says, as Joan presses the button and steps back, again evoking the apartment. It's a tragic moment. Joan really loves Roger, but she's wasting her time with him. He can never love her back in the way she wants. Long Weekend's conclusion starts with Don banging on the door of Rachel Mankin's apartment. This was an on-location set in Koreatown, near the site of the Ambassador Hotel. The shot mirrors earlier scenes where Don stood outside Midge's apartment in Greenwich Village. Don enters a mess, his hair tousled, his shirt unbuttoned. Rachel has already heard the news from Sterling Cooper's press release. She lets him in and fixes him a drink. Don leans in to kiss her, but she stops him. They move to the couch, where Don tells a story about being a pallbearer at a funeral. I remember thinking, they're letting me carry the box. They're letting me be this close to it. No one is hiding anything from me now. And then I looked over and I saw all the old people waiting together by the grave. And I remember thinking, I've. I just moved up a notch. Don is forthcoming in this scene. He speaks freely, bearing his soul, revealing his fears. It's clear from this scene that the inner Don Draper aches to get out, that his guarded demeanor conceals an inner turmoil. Remember that Rachel has been able to see through this guardedness since the pilot episode. Don sees her as someone who understands him, someone with whom he can start over. Don leads in to seduce her, and Rachel eventually concedes. As the episode closes, Don lays on her chest and tells the story of his childhood, first introduced in The Hobo Code. Long Weekend leaves us with a lot to unpack. Most notable for me is the powerful, varied performance of actor John Slattery. He portrays sentiments ranging from authoritative, to debauched, to comical, to despairing. Each convincing. It's the most impactful episode for Roger to date one that leaves us doubting his future in Mad Men's story. It's so rare when a television show can have you laughing in one moment, disgusted the next, and heartbroken just a few scenes later. It's a testament to Mad Men's quality that it can handle such a wide range of emotions. The contrast between Roger's philandering and the moving scene with his wife and daughter prompts us to ask, what is the importance of family in giving our lives meaning? And Long Weekend treats this theme extensively, through a recurring motif of fathers and daughters. The episode begins with Don and Sally on the staircase, 
It introduces Betty's father and exposes their conflict. It treats the subject of legacy through Rachel's father, Abe Menken. Even the final moments with Bert and Joan feel like a conversation between a father and his daughter. I think Mad Men is contrasting the purity of the kind of love that exists between fathers and daughters with the complicated, failing relationships it portrays throughout Long Weekend. There's an adoration in these fatherly relationships that seems so innocent, so unconditional. Their relationships motivated not by desire, but by something more profound, perhaps by a connection that comes from, as Roger says, in energy, the soul. Meanwhile, desire tears many of Mad Men's relationships apart. Significant among these is Joan's relationship with Roger. It's during Long Weekend that Joan realizes she needs to move on, and Christina Hendricks's performance in this episode is also brilliant, showing us the depth of Joan's character through her interactions with Roger, Carol, and Bert. She ends the episode full of regret, seeing in front of her Roger's age and inevitable decline. Costuming and makeup add so much to this episode, one that often uses sweat to portray the Labor Day summer heat. Don's unkempt hair helps convey his internal strife as he enters Rachel's apartment. Roger's paleness during his heart attack and hospital scenes is especially striking. Still, I'd say that Long Weekend's most lasting contribution to Mad Men is its portrayal of Don Draper against a backdrop of Roger's and Nixon's demise. Don begins the episode espousing Nixon. Through his monologue, he reveals how he sees himself, as a self-made success. But Long Weekend shows Don slowly falling apart, recognizing the emptiness of his life, and by the end, he seems totally broken. Don sees Rachel as a way to start something, a new beginning. We sense that he can't be completely open with her, though. He's doomed by his refusal to accept himself, one that, like Nixon, prevents him from opening himself to others and to greatness. But despite Long Weekend's spiritual consequences, the void left by Roger's decline will help Don rise professionally. Because if we're being pragmatic, Sterling Cooper has been left without its managing partner. And in Roger's absence, Don is next in line to guide the agency. This will undoubtedly have personal ramifications for Don, for Roger, for Betty, and for the employees of Sterling Cooper. Ramifications we'll explore in our next episode as we head into the long days of Mad Men's Indian summer. Hey everyone, I wanted to share a few quick announcements to wrap up the show. Number one, you may have noticed, but I've created some new episode art exclusively for season one. Number two, I've set up social media accounts that are linked in the episode description. You can now find me on Instagram and YouTube, where I'll release more Mad Men content. And finally, number three, I really appreciate your feedback and encourage you to like and comment on my episodes. And please subscribe to the podcast so you know when new content arrives. As always, you can reach out to me with any questions or comments. My email address is madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and see you next episode.